G'day, this is Rogue Syntax Primer. I'm Nathan Gray. And I'm Danny Zavella. I wrote this one with Danny's help, so thanks a lot for that, Danny. And script consultation was done by Dr. Rika Bundgaard Nielsen, who just got married this weekend. Congratulations, Rika and Kerry. And thanks to our collaborator, Makiko Yamamoto, who does our section headings. And thanks also to Vera Duval, whose original compositions you'll hear in this episode. Rogue Syntax is supported by the Australia Council for the Arts, Liquid Architecture and 1646 in Den Haag. So this is our third episode of Rogue Syntax Primer. In episode one, we talked about the foundations of language, and in episode two, we listened to how birds, whales, and even prairie dogs communicate in the wild. Episode three is a look into linguistic studies done on chimps from the turn of the 20th century to the early part of the 21st. Rather than punish you with a massive single episode, we've split episode three into two parts. This is part one. So uh, listen to the second part on our SoundCloud or subscribe on our podcast app. And thanks for listening. Rogue Syntax. Rogue Syntax. Rogue Syntax. Rogue Okay, because then the, the reveal is in here in Clever. Okay, from the top, Maki says, preamble. The Clever Hans effect. In the late 19th century, Willem van Osten, high school maths teacher and horse trainer, taught a horse called Hans to add, subtract, multiply, divide, work with fractions, to tell the time and the date, to read, spell, and to understand language. In this case, the language was German. Hans could provide the answer to mathematical problems by tapping his hoof the correct number of times. Van Osten began showing the horse as an exhibit and drawing crowds until eventually Germany's Board of Education asked to conduct an independent investigation into Hans's abilities. The Clever Hans Commission found that there was no trickery involved. Psychologist Oskar Pfungst then became interested in Hans's talents and provided a more rigorous testing environment. He found that Hans was remarkably accurate whether he was being tested by von Osten or other questioners, and therefore that von Osten wasn't deliberately providing the horse with help. However, when the questioner did not know the answer or was not visible to the horse, Hans's accuracy dropped to almost zero. It turns out that clever Hans was extremely clever, but not at maths. Hans, Funks worked out, could read the subconscious cues of his questioners to come up with the right answer. When Hans was tapping out a number, the questioner would focus on his hoof, and when the correct number was reached, 
the questioner would look at Hans. This combined with the changes in posture of the questioner were all that Hans needed to arrive at the right answer. The final proof came when Funks discovered he could signal to the horse himself by slightly raising his eyebrows. Then he could get the horse to give any response that he wanted. The clever Hans effect, as it is known in psychology, is when a human or animal senses what is required of them without being given deliberate signals. Hans's trainers weren't trying to fool anyone. In fact, they were fooled themselves into believing that Hans could actually do maths when all he could really do was read the desires of his trainer. The clever Hans effect is the er trauma of comparative psychology and animal language studies, one that will recur again in this and the next episode, and one that haunts the field to this day. Hans's story doesn't end there either. Van Osten never stopped believing his horse could read and count, and together with businessman Karl Kral, trained the horse with blinkers to answer questions without being able to see the questioner at all. How it was possible, if it was true, is not known, but by this time the public had lost interest. Hans outlived von Osten, whose poor treatment and improper housing of the animal in the cobbled yard of his Berlin house had left it with hoof disease and other problems. He passed into Kral's possession, who continued intelligence experiments with him and other horses, as well as a donkey and an elephant, until Hans was eventually requisitioned for use in World War I, from which point his fate is unknown. Poor Hans. Poor Hans. Some good names in there. Funkst, mm. von Osten, Karl Kral. Karl Krak. Karl Krak. R.I.P. Karl Krak. Introduction. Hans is just one of many animals who got involved with scientists who wanted animals to talk. This episode and the next of Rogue Syntax is going to deal with a series of linguistic experiments on animals. And we want to preface this by saying that in our opinion, all of these experiments, especially those involving chimps, are unethical. Though they have progressed, scientific ethics on animals in experiments, both medical and behavioural, seems out of step with a view that takes animals as sentient, conscious, feeling non-human others. We want to say that after researching these two episodes on animal language experiments, it is clear to us that keeping chimps in captivity is harmful. We'll cover precisely why this is as we go along, but let's just place this right here at the start as both a statement and to let it serve as a content warning because this episode contains lots of tragedy, cruelty, and violence to animals and humans. As opposed to last episode, where we looked at research on naturally occurring animal communications in the wild, these episodes will deal with attempts to teach animals human or human-like languages in laboratory settings. And these experiments are interesting, not only from a linguistic point of view, but also from the perspective of the history of science, because they begin in the late 1950s and early 1960s 
and they form part of a pitched battle between two competing schools of psychology, behaviourism and cognitivism. Chapter 1. Behaviorism, Cognitivism, Operant Conditioning and Breaking Chains. Herbert S. Terrace is a comparative psychologist. Comparative psychology attempts to compare the minds of humans and animals. As Terrace, one of the key players in our story, explains, behaviorism dominated psychology for the first half of the 20th century. Research in areas as diverse as human memory, psychophysics, perception, and animal learning assumed that behavior was the only dependent variable in psychology. A dependent variable is the variable being tested in a psychological experiment. So saying that behavior is the only dependent variable basically means that it's the only thing you can measure or test. Terrace again. Most comparative psychologists reject insight and other mentalistic concepts because evidence of these concepts cannot be observed directly. Instead, they base their theories exclusively on objectively defined stimulus and responses, a credo of behaviorism. Behaviorism views the minds of humans and animals alike as a black box, a completely unknown and unknowable thing. So only behaviour and the environment's effects on behaviour can be observed and therefore studied. In the early 20th century, Russian psychologist Ivan Pavlov performed experiments with dogs where a bell was rung before feeding, and later this bell became the stimulus for salivation, even when no food was present. This classical conditioning was the starting point for the work of self-proclaimed radical behaviorist, the American psychologist B.F. Skinner, who reversed this process and began to use rewards to affect behaviors. This is Nathaniel Mann's recording of a flock of Birmingham roller pigeons wearing special pigeon whistles. Skinner worked extensively with pigeons, showing how a series of rewards could be used to condition the bird's behaviours, and these behaviours could be chained together to form complex tasks. What complex tasks could a pigeon do? Well, there are many complex tasks, but one of the most complex that I found was this. Skinner gave us an example of a complex task that a pigeon could perform when during World War II, he developed a pigeon guided missile. He built a nose cone for a missile fitted with three small electronic screens and three tiny pigeon cockpits. Onto the screens was projected an image of the ground in front of the rocket and the pigeons were trained to peck the targets. 
By triangulating the location of the pecking, it was thought that the missile could be guided to its target. And one reason pigeons were chosen for this task is that pigeon behavior remains constant, even under stress. As the literature often says, they're unflappable. Fortunately, the US Army thought a mechanical means would be more effective than pigeon bombing. Okay, so to show some respect for those fallen pigeon troops, here's a little musical break. This is some pigeon music from Madjuri's East Java. It's a kind of gamelan called Galundang, which is by and for pigeon fanciers. And this comes courtesy of Oral Archipelago. Terrace, who, reflecting on these behaviourist moves, said Skinner's ingenious ability to analyse and organise voluntary behaviour into particular combinations of discriminative stimuli and instrumental responses enabled him to develop a research program that appeared to have no limits. Skinner's system of rewards and punishments used to alter behaviour was known as operant conditioning, and he used it as a basis for analysis to develop his ideas of how language was learnt. Terrace again. In 1957, Skinner attempted to show how a chaining model could explain language. In his book, Verbal Behaviour, he argued that language was simply a collection of verbal habits that children learned by trial and error and or by imitating their caretaker's utterances. He also argued that sentences were constructed one word at a time. Each step in a chaining model is both a reward and a sign that an individual is one step closer to a further reward, like seeing the various landmarks on a walk through a town on your way to a destination. You know you're on the right track. Skinner's model for language is a complex system of chained behaviours developed through a system of reward and punishment. So then in comes Chomsky. Ah, and again, we're going to be drawing from Herbert S. Terrace's book here with another quote. Terrace said, it's no exaggeration to say that Chomsky's review of Skinner's verbal behavior was one of the most influential and devastating critiques of behaviorism 
and one that helped to create the field of cognitive psychology. Chomsky's review showed why language was more than a chain of conditioned responses. More generally, he showed why behaviorists couldn't account for the ability to create an essentially infinite number of new and meaningful sentences by combining a finite set of words. Chomsky used declarative sentences, sentences that held embedded clauses, to show that sentence structures could not possibly be learned one word at a time. We can take a simple sentence such as Makiko Yamamoto is reading this sentence. And we can add clauses into the middle of it, so we can have Makiko Yamamoto, a sound artist, is reading this sentence. Or even Makiko Yamamoto, a sound artist from Japan, who lives in Australia and who works with language, is reading this sentence. This last sentence embeds details about Makiko, where she's from, where she lives and what she does, inside the original basic sentence. The ideas work in a non-linear way, and this kind of non-linearity Chomsky claimed, meant that Skinner's one-word-at-a-time learning model just wouldn't work. Chomsky also argued that human language was learned during childhood with no specific training and quickly, extremely quickly. Too quickly, Chomsky argued, to be purely learnt and therefore, he surmised, language learning must have some biological basis. Chomsky also noted that learning was done with the same steps regardless of culture and that languages were all translatable between cultures. So therefore this biological component was shared by all humans and not shared with other species. Chomsky, being Chomsky, also placed considerable emphasis on syntax and what syntax enabled namely the creation of new and novel sentences, which he regarded as being a defining feature of language. So Chomsky's critique challenged behaviorism on multiple fronts. It challenged the idea that the environment was the key factor influencing behavior. It doubted that language was learnt through the mechanism of operant conditioning and it drew a line between humans and other species that challenged the idea that cognitive studies done on animals, and particularly those to do with language, could yield results that were transferable to humans. Herbert S. Terrace, at this time an acolyte of Skinner and himself doing operant conditioning experiments on pigeons, took the Chomsky critique personally. To make matters worse for Terrace, Skinner himself made no reply to Chomsky, even as Chomsky's criticisms began to be taken more and more seriously by the field. So Terrace designed an experiment intended to use operant conditioning, the same type that Skinner thought human children were exposed to when learning language, to teach a chimpanzee language. Terrace intended to specifically disprove Chomsky's criticisms and to add insult to injury and to underscore the huge burn he thought he was about to deliver, he named his chimp Nim Chimpsky. 
Here is Terrace again. If I could teach Nim to produce sentences in sign language, I would have refuted Chomsky's view that only humans could learn language. Specifically, I would have shown that the ability to create new meanings by combining words, an ability Chomsky claimed was the defining feature of language, could be found in other species. So we see in the case of Terrace and Chimsky an example of animals being used as pawns in arguments between different schools of human psychology, and the impact on the lives of these animals was tragic. You might be wondering what's the deal with chimps and research anyway? So non-human primates are often selected for research because they're our nearest living relatives and chimps and their cousins bonobos share 98.7% of our human DNA. However, to contextualize this, an Abyssinian house cat shares 90% of our DNA and a mouse 85. Each human shares 99.9% of all their DNA with every other human. So a little difference goes a long way. The chimps's 98.7% genetic similarity doesn't extend to behavior. Since chimpanzees don't necessarily live in human-like societies or have many behaviors that are human-like. So Let's take a moment to look at chimps in the wild and then some of the precursors to Terrace's experiment in order to find out what is known about apes and their abilities with human languages. Chapter 3 Chimp Society Chimpanzee facts. In the background of this scene is a recording from the jungles of Tanzania by Andrew Skiok. In the wild, chimpanzees, pan troglodytes, live in groups of between 20 and 140 individuals. Though larger groups have been documented, they have what's called a fission-fusion model of socialization, with smaller groups breaking off and reuniting for various reasons. Each group is headed by a dominant alpha male, though in captivity, female-led groups have been observed. Dominance must be frequently reasserted by the alpha male through aggressive display and occasional violence. Yet alliances and political groupings also play an important role with coalitions of less powerful chimps able to achieve outcomes in their favour and unseat tyrannical alpha males. Male chimps frequently patrol their territory to defend it against other groups. Wars, occupation of territory and forced absorption of one group into another have been documented. Female chimps also have a hierarchy within the chimp hierarchy, though they seldom outrank the males. Females have the majority of the child-rearing duties, though males also look after young and are occasionally primary caregivers. Chimp females mate promiscuously and give birth roughly every five years. 
Bonobos, the other species in the same pan genus as the chimpanzee, have a markedly different culture, one that is matriarchal and relies far less than chimp society on aggression for solving conflicts. In fact, bonobos actually use sex to resolve a lot of conflicts, and you can look that up for yourself, people. Yeah, little monkeys. Chimp communication. Both chimps and bonobos. <laughs> say what feels right. Okay, both just chimps. Not monkeys, just don't say that. Both anymore. chimps and monkeys uh, no, communicate with gestures. <laughs> both chimps and bonobos or bonobos communicate with gestures, displays, and calls, many of which are shared with humans. For example, bonobos will beg by stretching out an open hand or sometimes a foot to a possessor of food, and they will pout their lips and make whimpering sounds if this effort is unsuccessful. As primatologists Pavel Fedurek and Katie E. Slocum note, Chimpanzees have been shown to produce acoustically distinctive calls for foods of different values. And in captivity, this system even extends to specific calls being produced in response to high-value food items, bread, mango, banana, that remain stable over feeding events. But... Of course, the most famous chimp call is the pant hoot, an escalating series of vocalizations often produced in chorus that is used for multiple purposes as a greeting to broadcast the location of food and to call at a distance between different parties of the same group. This pant hooting allows chimps to localize and identify each other and has been shown to have different local distinct dialects. And now Danny will demonstrate the uh, chimp pant hoot. One moment, please. <laughs> and here we go. Is this a... This means hello. <laughs> oh, my oh my god. That's actually the voice of chimp researcher Tetsuro Matsuzawa. I think I've seen I just put it Jane in the WhatsApp Goodall chat. Also do oh a pant my hoot. god, it's so I'd like that we should look at that. My wonderful welcome comes to you from the forests and hills of Gombe National Park in Tanzania. The sound that you would hear if you came, some of you have been, but if you go to Gombe and climb the hills in the morning, the sound of a chimpanzee greeting the day, announcing, here I am, who's out there? Hello. Okay, despite their vocal abilities, the majority of chimp communication is done gesturally, and chimps and most other great apes seldom, if ever, produce sounds that are not specific emotive responses to situations. Food calls, for instance, are only produced in the presence of food, and not only that, chimps find them very difficult to suppress. 
Jane Goodall observed one chimpanzee who barked repeatedly upon finding food. Unfortunately, a more dominant chimpanzee always heard the bark and, as a result, came running and stole the food. The unfortunate barker finally learned to suppress the bark and pretended not to see a new food source until the dominant chimp was out of sight. That's a quote from Animal Bodies, Human Minds, Ape, Dolphin and Parrot Language Skills by William A. Hillix and Dwayne M. Rumba. A really great history of animal language experiments, at least up until the late 80s. We've used animal bodies a lot throughout this and the next episode. And if you're interested in any further reading, it's great. It really gives a good timeline of these studies. Chapter 4. Silent Apes and Ape Children. Farness, Johnny, Gua and Vicky. Farness and the Unnamed Orautan. One of the earliest attempts to teach great apes to speak was reported by 19th century physician and ethnographer William Henry Furness III. Though Furness did own two chimpanzees, his experiments were on an orangutan, whose name, if she had one, is lost to history. Furness's orangutan learned to say Papa after six months of training. The training included holding her lips together and releasing them while he repeated the sound, sometimes while in front of a mirror, so that the orangutan could notice the similarity in movement between his lips and hers. She referred to Furness as Papa and could point him out when asked where Papa was. She was also later taught to say cup, but these experiments were cut short by her untimely death in 1912. And Johnny. From 1913, Russian psychologist Nadisha Coates raised a chimpanzee called Joni and documented its failure to vocalize. As Coates wrote, the infant chimpanzee constantly hears human vocalizations, responds correctly to spoken directions, uses its own natural sounds for expressing his emotions, and acquires complex conditional reflexes for the mimetic expression of his desires. But never once has there been traced any evidence to the effect that the chimpanzee would try to imitate the human voice or to master even the most elementary words by means of which he would be able to greatly facilitate intercourse with his master. In Coates' 1935 book, Infant, Ape and Human Child, we see one of the continuing obsessions of this kind of research, to document and compare the development of human and ape young. The intention is clearly to differentiate between what is biological and what is learned, what is nature and what is nurture. Coates again. Almost all the 25 sounds that we have on record and which Joni was capable of emitting when moved by various emotional stimuli find themselves a definite counterpart in Rudy's vocalizations. Rudy being the Coates's human son. The implication here is clear that the communication of human children encompasses all ape sounds and more. 
referring to one of the founders of primatology who conducted studies on ape intelligence, Robert M. Yerkes. Coates wrote, the experiments conducted by Professor Yerkes have plainly shown that no amount of training will ever teach the chimpanzee human speech. The chimpanzee is devoid of imitation insofar as human sounds are concerned and generally fails to extend or improve its imitatory behavior. The chimpanzee does not improve its motor habits connected with the use of tools or household implements. He doesn't indulge in creative constructional play. The chimpanzee actually fails to possess any inherent tendency towards progressing. All the more strong is the contrast with the human child who boldly dares to overcome his mental and physical deficiencies. It may even be the natural weakness of the human body, notably the weakness of the teeth and arms, which prompted primeval man to toil, take a tool in hand and become technician and inventor. Makiko. Gua and the Kelloggs. Luella and Winthrop Kellogg were American comparative psychologists who studied the behavior over a number of intelligent animal species. Together, the Kelloggs raised a chimpanzee called Gua for nine months with their child, Donald. Their explicit goal was comparing the development of the child and the chimp within the same environment. Their attempts to teach Gua to vocalize arbitrary names for a small set of objects met with no success. However, despite her shortcomings in vocalization, Gua did apparently understand 58 spoken phrases compared to human Donald's 68. For the first four months of their comparison, Gua was ahead of Donald. After that, Donald surpassed Gua in both the comprehension and production of human language. Gua did, however, use nine gestures spontaneously to indicate various desires such as the desire to eat, drink, or sleep. On the gestures, Kellogg wrote, the spontaneous use of gesture movements by chimpanzees raises the question whether this ability to gesture can be developed into something more. Could an intelligent animal learn a series of regular or standardized signals as a sort of semaphore system. Here he seems to be hinting at something similar to human sign language. Catherine Hayes and Vicky. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, scientist Catherine Hayes and her husband Keith at the Yerkes Laboratories of Primate Biology raised and trained a chimp called Vicky. Vicky was the subject of another early experiment in ape language and was also raised as a human infant by human, quote, parents, seeking to make her learn to speak human words. And as with other experiments, the Hayes' teaching methods involved manually shaping Vicky's lips to form words. Here's a quote from Animal Bodies about Vicky's speech. At three years old, she could say three words mama, papa, and cup, and seemed to use cup fairly reliably with little indication that she knew what the other two words meant. She also used ah as a request, especially for a cigarette, a cigarette, and a clicking sound for a car ride request, a cigarette. 
Yeah, and this is not the first time we'll hear of chimps smoking. This collection of early experiments demonstrated one thing clearly though. Chimps suck at vocalizing. Their abilities at imitating human vocal sounds are limited and their vocalizing is intrinsically linked to emotion. Interestingly, this limitation does not seem to be physiological, but instead neurological, since chimps seem to have a similar vocal tract to ours. However, something is different in the way that it wires to the brain. The motor control and shape of the oral cavity of the great apes differs from humans in being less agile or less precisely controlled, and by having a different shaped resonating cavity that doesn't really allow for the full range of speech sounds that humans can produce. This is because our human speech apparatus has changed as a result of bipedal motion. It also means that humans are much more likely to choke and die. Fox P2 and language learning. Sidebar, Fox P2. So, Geneticists have found a prospective reason for this difference in wiring. The gene FOXP2, which is found in many vertebrates and seems to play a role in mimicry by birds, mimicry being the mechanism by which birds chiefly learn their songs, as you'll remember from Rogue Syntax Episode 2. And FOXP2 also plays a role in echolocation by bats. FOXP2 is also required for the proper development of speech and language in humans. It's the only gene found to have an effect on human language, and it differs by two amino acids in chimps. And given that small differences in DNA goes a long way, that's significant. This is also important for Chomsky's idea of language as being an innate capacity of the human brain. Because if there's a gene for it, language must therefore have a biological basis. This reliance on a genetic mutation would also allow for language to arise relatively suddenly. But because genes don't leave imprints in the fossil records, we can't see their historical signs or traces. In a recent lecture at MIT in 2019, Chomsky speculates there is a cultural shift in the archaeological record around a hundred thousand years ago that possibly corresponds with this genetic mutation. With FOXP2 it seems too early to tell. Genes are notoriously hard to pin to even physical characteristics, let alone behaviours, but the idea that this mutation occurs after our evolutionary split from the common ancestor that we share with chimps might explain assertions that chimps can't learn language. Um, my turn. Chapter 5 and the gardeners. So while we can see that there was basically a mini craze for experimenting with apes to discover insights into human language from the 19th century to the mid 20th century, society was at the same time becoming aware of the sentience of these evolutionary near neighbors and opinion started to turn against chimpanzee experimentation. Many started to question the scientific value of such research, especially when compared to the harm they caused. 
In her groundbreaking 2011 study of experimentation on chimps, animal rights, chimpanzee research on trial, biomedical politics researcher Meredith Wadman explains that the United States stopped importing chimpanzees after signing a 1973 treaty banning trade in endangered species. When the AIDS epidemic hit, the National Institutes for Health launched a breeding program for chimpanzees. But the agency declared a moratorium on breeding in 1995, after it became clear that the chimps were a poor model for the disease. This was not before the US population of chimps grew to an estimated 1,500 apes in the latter part of the 20th century. However, it took many more years and studies like Wadman's and those of legendary primatologist Jane Goodall until invasive medical research began to be phased out in 2013. And by 2015, all invasive tests were ended. This does not, however, include behavioral studies and many invasive tests are still being conducted on other primates and indeed non-primates to this day. Washoe was one of the last generation of wild-caught chimps for research in the US. It's suspected that Washoe was captured and taken to animal dealers in 1965 after her mother was killed by hunters in West Africa. Washoe was then bought by the US Air Force Space Program. In 1961, the U.S. space program had sent a chimp, Ham the Astrochimp, on a suborbital flight and then recovered him. He wasn't actually called Ham until he came back. Before that, he was called Chimp number 65. He was named after the project that sent him up, Halliwell Aerospace Mission, but only on his return because it was feared that naming him would create too much bad publicity if he didn't make it home safely. So, so, so yes, US space program and chimps and back to Washoe. Washoe, last of the wild-caught chimps, was adopted by Alan and Beatrix Gardner after a visit to the Air Force facility. Originally named Kathy, she was renamed Washoe after the county in Nevada where the Gardners lived. Cross-fostering is the name for when an animal is removed from their biological parents at birth and raised by surrogates. In behavioural studies, if cross-fostered offspring show a behavioural trait similar to their biological parents and dissimilar from their foster parents, a behaviour can be shown to have a genetic basis. So Washoe was cross-fostered in the Gardner home, living like a human child. She learned to eat with a fork, drink from a cup, dress herself and use a toilet, play with dolls and look at picture books. Given the poor results in previous experiments teaching chimps to vocalise, the gardeners decided to teach Washoe to use ASL, which is American Sign Language. And since ASL was learnt by human children, as William A. Hillix declares in Animal Bodies, Human Minds, it would be possible to compare the acquisition of sign in chimpanzees with the acquisition of sign in human children. And, by all accounts, the gardeners were successful. 
In the research program they set up at the University of Nevada in 1967, they managed to teach Washoe 131 signs by the time she was 51 months old, or four years and three months. Later experiments showed that if training started even earlier, even larger vocabularies could be learned. Washoe started to combine signs very quickly after she'd learned eight or ten individual signs. The gardeners cited examples like you blow and you me drink. She also used combinations of signs to denote novel objects as she encountered them, calling a potty a dirty good and a swan a water bird. Washoe also invented a sign on her own, a sign for bib. Washoe's sign involved moving the fingers of both hands along her chest in the approximate position of the bib when present. Washoe therefore invented what's called an iconic sign. Many signs probably have an iconic origin, which then tend towards increasing simplicity and abstractness. As we shall see, other apes would also invent iconic signs. Unlike some of the earlier researchers, and the example of Lucy, who we will examine next, the gardeners were far more rigorous and scientific in their research. They forbid the use of spoken English while signing, because using both languages at the same time means that speakers or signers do not sign as well. If ASL is a second language, they tend to mostly only speak while signing just a few key words. And as we covered in episode one, sign languages are languages in their own rights, not simply signed versions of spoken languages. American and British sign languages are not simply different ways of speaking English, but constitute different languages in their own right and are not mutually comprehensible. Though some similarities exist between BSL, Auslan and NZSL or New Zealand sign language. As sign language researchers Bonvillian, Nelson and Charo discovered nearly 50 years ago, those who've only recently learned to sign and speak English at the same time soon find that they're speaking English sentences while adding the signs for a few of the key words in each sentence. The gardeners also experimented with operant conditioning, reinforcing correct use of signs with immediate rewards in the way that Skinnerites believed learned behaviours were shaped. This process was initially supposed to take place in a restricted environment in order to eliminate extraneous, distracting stimuli. But this made teaching impractical, and the gardeners instead relied more on the techniques used by deaf parents in human families, responding to a child's requests, answering their questions, and drawing their attention to signs by signing on their bodies. Importantly, moulding the hands into signs, or guidance as it is sometimes known, was found to be the most effective means of teaching chimps, perhaps because they are less proficient at mimicry and therefore observational learning. Years later, Washo would teach her adopted son Luulis to sign using moulding, though in other circumstances, operant conditioning and observational learning have both yielded results in teaching chimpanzees. In Washoe's case, it seems, the reward-punishment system was less effective than simple manual modelling. 
In September 1967, a graduate research assistant, Roger Foots, began working with Washoe and in 1970, the decision was made to send Washoe to the University of Oklahoma with Foots and his wife, Deborah. But Foots immediately clashed with the head of the facility, Dr. William Lemon, who used electric cattle prods and a pellet gun to discipline chimps and held them in specially built cages with sharp edges. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, William Lemon will come back in our story and he doesn't get any better. At Oklahoma, Washoe became the matriarch of a small group of cross-fostered chimps, including Moya, Tatu and Da, all of whom used ASL. Foots eventually managed to move the group to a, a far more humane facility of his own design called the Chimpanzee and Human Communication. Institute. Washo died in 2007, and in 2013, the two remaining members of the clan, Lulis and Tatu, were sent to the Fauna Foundation in Quebec, and the CHCI was closed down. Chapter 6 Lucy The Temarins Fortsies and Janice Carter A Tragedy In 1964, Maurice and James Tamerlan adopted their second chimp, naming her Lucy, after a character from Charles Schultz's comic strip Peanuts. The Tamerlans did not regard Lucy as a subject in a scientific experiment. They regarded her as a daughter rather than an object to be observed. And the Tamerlans were not scientists per se, but academics. Maurice was a psychotherapist and university professor. The people responsible for her scientific career, such as it was, were not her parents. They were Roger Foots and his students, who started to teach Lucy American Sign Language when she was five years old. One of these grad students was Sue Savage-Rumba, who we'll meet again later. Lucy learned a hundred signs with the Tamerlans, who reported that Lucy also constructed unique combinations of signs when she first encountered items, such as radishes and watermelons, for which she had no sign. Upon biting the radish, Lucy signed Cry Hurt Fruit. The watermelon she called Candy Drink or Drink Fruit. This is very reminiscent of Washoe's recombinant creation of Waterbird upon seeing a swan. And Lucy also invented a sign for leash, which she indicated by placing a crooked forefinger near her neck. Again, this recalls Washoe's invention of the sign for bib. By the time Lucy was 11, she began to try to assert her dominance over those around her, which, as we learned earlier, is pretty normal for chimp society. She became violent with her trainers and the Tamerlans decided to consider other options for her. There is a recent documentary called Lucy the Human Chimp that goes into her life in detail. But from an outside perspective, Lucy's life with the Tamerlans was extremely privileged. 
Here's a quote from Maurice Tamerlan, again taken from Animal Bodies, about Lucy's life with them. Then the three of us had a gin and tonic together, sitting in the living room. Then Lucy invited Jane and me to chase her. Nanook and Lucy played chase. Lucy got hungry while Jane and I were having a second drink, went to the refrigerator and helped herself to a carton of raspberry yogurt. A few bites of a leftover pot roast, a carrot, half a carton of partially defrosted frozen strawberries, and took three or four bites out of the head of a lettuce. Then she went back to the sofa, covered herself with a blanket, and fell asleep. Lucy and Janice Carter. Stella Brewer was a pioneer in chimpanzee rehabilitation who returned chimpanzees to the wild in Gambia in the 1960s and 1970s. Stella was unwilling to take on Lucy, whom she regarded as a bad risk because she was an adult and, for a chimpanzee, extremely spoiled. A young researcher, Janice Carter, managed to form a relationship with Lucy, and it was decided that she'd accompany her from the US to Brewer's compound in Gambia. Lucy's life there wasn't easy. She didn't acclimatize to life with wild chimps and almost died several times. Eventually she was found dead, most likely killed by poachers. Roger Foots summed up Lucy's life and death in two poignant sentences. Humans raised Lucy, taught her language, sent her to Africa, and rehabilitated her. And, in the end, they killed her. Again and again, we'll see this pattern. Chimps who in childhood resemble humans so much that they're raised in very similar ways to human babies. But by the time the chimps reach puberty, around the age of five, they begin to violently assert their dominance, biting and attacking their trainers and family in an attempt to climb the chimp hierarchy. In chimp society, their dominance needs to be constantly and violently reasserted and an adult chimp's strength is at least four times that of an adult human. During the history of the Institute of Primate Studies at the University of Oklahoma, a period of 13 years, researchers collectively lost 11 fingers and a thumb to chimp bites. So in some respects, the cruelty of William Lemon, he of the electric cattle prods and razor wire fences, might be understood as attempts to assert his dominance in ways he thought chimps could understand. Though to be honest, to us they seem more expressions of his sadistic personality. Here Roger Foots talks of Bui, another home-reared chimp who learned ASL and who like Lucy became too violent to be kept in a human house. The chimps did not stop signing, though the technicians did not understand them. We heard from visitors that Bowie and others kept asking the techs in American Sign Language for food, drinks, cigarettes, and the keys to their cages. In my eyes, there was no difference between Pan, who Dr. William Lemon described as his foster son and who was the object of much of his cruelty, who couldn't sign at all, and Bowie, who knew 30 signs 
or between Manny, who had two signs, Come Hug, and Ali, who had 130 signs. All the chimps felt the same pain of loneliness and a terrible fear about their strange new surroundings. Each of them had the same deep need that you or I would for the comfort of physical contact and affection. That was the tragedy of putting these social creatures in solitary cages that dangled above the floor. Ali and Nim weren't suffering because they knew sign language. They suffered because they were chimpanzees. And as Martine Collette, the director of the Wildlife Way Station in Los Angeles said, they live 50 to 65 years, but their lives in human households are only the first four to five. They miss everything a chimp child learns, how to be a successful chimpanzee, chimp politics and behavior. It makes it difficult for them when they have to be placed in groups. Later, the fortunes of these chimps worsened when in 1982, the Primate Institute at Oklahoma University was closed and its chimps secretly sold off to LEMSIP. No, not the lemony drink. LEMSIP here is an acronym for the Laboratory for Experimental Medicine and Surgery in Primates. There, chimpanzees and other non-human primates were subjected to intensive, invasive biomedical research in areas including reproduction, blood transfusions, hepatitis B and HIV. And unfortunately, we'll hear more about LEMSIP later on. Most chimps who were retired from behavioral research were, until recently, still used for medical research, though this was ended in 2015, when chimps were declared endangered and national chimp retirement facilities were established. But these only provide for chimps or bonobos to live in groups, not to coexist with humans as some of them have become acclimated to. Those who continued to participate in behavioural research were forced to spend their lives in conditions that resembled maximum security prisons. Though it may be the desire of chimp researchers to have better facilities, only Futz's now defunct Chimpanzee Human Communication Institute created an environment that would both protect human trainers and allow chimps some modicum of freedom while maintaining the possibility of mixed species groups of humans and chimps. Okay. Later behavioral experiments moved more to working with bonobos and today these experiments have wound down completely. A change has taken over the field. For one thing, there's no physical contact between humans and bonobos anymore. It's just considered too dangerous. And this seems more of a labor issue than anything. It's not the 1970s anymore, and losing a finger at work is no longer part of the job for primate researchers. The focus of today's facilities is enrichment the creation of stimulating activities that strengthen the well-being and health of the chimps and bonobos. One of the enrichment activities, for instance, trains chimps to present body parts for examination by doctors and weigh themselves, creating stimulating puzzles that have health outcomes. Other activities are simulated foraging activities, which are essentially food treasure hunts. 
So in this episode, we've set the stage with some of the issues in psychology, the changing conditions for chimps and bonobos, and the establishment of non-verbal communications as the main means for humans and chimps to interact. In part two, we're going to go further into the curious interspecies world of animal language experiments. We'll finally get into the showdown between Herbert S. Terrace and Noam Chomsky, look at some of the animal and human casualties along the way, and we'll meet Kanzi, the most accomplished non-human language user ever. End of part one. Coming up, part two. Okay. The famous man looked at the red cup. 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 Syntax. Rogue 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 syntax